Louise Bedford here. Just before we kick off with today's show, I wanted to let you know that for one week only, you can get up to 84% off a selection of my most popular trading education products available through tradinggame.com.au. Make no mistake. Your financial future is in your hands. So check out the audios, videos, and study courses that I have available at tradinggame.com.au. Now's your chance to develop your skills as a trader for up to 84% off, but only for the next week. Let's get on with the show. Hi, I'm Caroline Stephen, financial journalist. Welcome to Talking Trading. You know, it used to take longer to become a barista than a stockbroker. And before the dot-com revolution, the broking world was a very different game. Chris Tate was on the coalface, seeing what happened in these broking houses, and he's seen some of the immoral things which can happen in the finance industry. In today's episode... We hear some of the crazy things that brokers got up to in the 80s and 90s. Think Wolf of Wall Street and you're not far off. Turbocharged sales roles, drug and alcohol fueled meetings, front-running client positions. Now things have been regulated thanks to technology. But Chris Tate's mission is the same, to get investors to think for themselves. But first up... Here's Louise Bedford in Mind Power. Yes, usually I'd be saying that procrastination is the language of the poor. In fact, procrastination is one of the key differences between the way that the rich and the poor think. The rich aim to learn a new skill and implement it immediately and then reinforce the lesson. Whereas the poor will get around to that new skill implementation sometime. Oh, well, okay, well, maybe never. But I want you to consider procrastination in terms of intuition rather than something that can stand in the way between you and the achievement of your goals. You see, if you're experiencing a sense of dread about a decision, or if you're trying to silence a nagging voice of concern, maybe it's your subconscious giving you a message. Personally, the worst business and financial investments I've ever made were when I was rushed into the process, when I pushed ahead and I gagged out my freaked out little voice of concern and the voice of reason, and when I was pressed to act quickly. You see, It's very easy to foul up a whole heap of things if you're not listening to your inner voice. Bad decisions have been made and I had consequences that I had to live with. Sometimes it's good to take a step back. Squint at the problem. Look at it from all angles. Don't feel rushed into making a firm decision if something doesn't quite seem right. You might have your intuition nagging at you for a particular reason. Allow it to be heard or you might just pay the consequences as well. You see, nobody will ever care as much about your money as you do. So sometimes delaying a decision can be the best decision. 
Need a little short-term trading magic in your life? Chris Tate and I are touring Australia to give you our one-day course so that you can trade the short-term trends and raid the markets. We're coming to Sydney, Perth and Melbourne and you want to be in that room as we reveal our secrets. Go to tradinggame.com.au for details. tradinggame.com.au My name is Meredith Jones, author of Women of the Street, Why Female Money Managers Outperform and How You Can Too, and I listen to Talking Trading. Chris Tate, hello and welcome back to Talking Trading. Hello, Caroline. Chris, you're an old fox in the share market. You've been trading for over 30 years and you've seen one or two things in your day. Let's talk about some of the things that may have been erring on the shady side of things. You were once handed a very large check. I was. One of my clients had a bank bull rollover occurring. And that actually rang me that morning and said, look, ANZ's in the same building as you. Can you just nip upstairs and tell them to roll it over again? And I said, oh, yeah, not a problem. I can do that on my way out to lunch. So I rocked into the ANZ Treasury and said, look, this bank bull's rolling over. It was for 13 and a bit million, which was quite a bit of money back in the day, and it still is. And so I, I said to the girl, look, this facility's due for rolling over. Can you roll it over? And before I could finish, she said, what name would you like the check in? And I went, no, hang on. It's not for me, Christopher dear. Norman Tate. Yeah, I would just like it rolled over, please. It's one of those things where you go, someone could have just simply walked in here and gone, this facility is rolling over. Can you write the check out to this name and have absconded with the coin? And it was just, it was a reflection of back in the day, how incredibly lax things were. There was a similar situation around about the same time where I can't remember the exact figure, but several hundred million dollars in bearer bonds just went missing. Now, for those who don't know, a bearer bond has a face value that is effectively a cash face value. You could turn up anywhere in the world and cash it. They just disappeared one day off the back of a truck, and nobody to this day knows where they went. Things have tightened up now because of the age of computers, strangely enough. Machines do a very good job of tracking things. But back in the day, people complain now about the fact that we have instantaneous settlement. If you don't have the money, you can't buy something. That's always seemed fair to me. Back in the day, we used to have, we started off as T plus 14. Then that went to a nominal T plus 30. Then it went to T plus, well, whenever we can catch up with it. Because broking houses were so overwhelmed by the amount of trades they were doing in the 80s, that they just couldn't keep up. And so in my last year of trading, I never paid for anything. I just waited for it to go up and sell it. Now, unfortunately, Come October 1987, the music stopped and everybody had to try and find a chair. And I had a colleague who worked for a firm and he proudly boasted that it cost them $30,000 a day to turn the lights on. They lasted about nine months after the crash because nobody paid them. Investing back then was just a giant Ponzi scheme. Back in the day, brokers were very good at feathering their own nests. In what sort of way did you see this occur? Uh, this is an old chestnut. There used to be a thing back in the day called front running 
what front running means is that brokers take a position in front of their clients' orders. And it's effectively like a form of surfing. They use the clients as a wave to push prices ahead. And it can, t- it can take two forms. It, it either used to be done through simple dealing. Uh, fortunately now, with the advent of computerised trading, that's all seen and can't be done. It's actually very hard to get away with now. But it could be done on a corporate level. Back during the day when we used to have all these privatisations going on, what brokers would do is approach their clients and say, how many CBA would you want? And the client would say, I'd like to try and subscribe for a 1,000. The brokers would block those together and present them for allocation pre-float. What would then happen is the broking firm would get an allocation of something like CBA, and it would be then up to them to distribute it to their clients as per the client's request. What happened in more than one instance was the broking firm got the allocation based upon what their clients want. The principals of the firm kept the lot, told their clients they got none, and so benefited massively from the privatisations. And one of, one of the good things that, that's occurred with with the increase in regulation that we've seen is that a lot of this disappears. And you couldn't really expect more because when I sat on a dealing desk, the bloke in front of me had been a shoe salesman two weeks beforehand and the bloke next to me had sold carpet up until three weeks before that. Fortunately, the, the attempts to bring some degree of professionalism to the industry has brought that to a halt. However, however, there still are, I believe, firms around who are less than, shall we say, honest in their accreditation exams. So there are still problems in the industry. And as part of the wider industry, it used to take longer to become a barista than a stockbroker. <laughs> you could do a weekend course to become a stockbroker. It takes about five days down here in Melbourne to become a barista. You and Louise were once asked to cheat on the AFSL test. Yes. Yeah, once upon a time... This is going back to my point about some brokers being perhaps less than honest in their accreditation process. We've known people who've said, oh, look, there's no need to do the actual exams. We've got someone in-house who sits them all for everyone. That seems to be their professional role. You've had some drug and alcohol fueled meetings where one purple-headed lady was up to her eyeballs in cocaine. Uh, yes. Look, th- this seems to be a, a bog standard in the finance industry. And this goes back to the day when I was a broker in that th- there used to be a general rule in stockbroking that post 12 o'clock on a Friday, you need to near the seats machine because they were the, either too, to use the technical term, shit mixed to enter an order properly or they just collapse face down on the keyboard. Really? And the Yeah. Well, and the same was true of things they stuck at their noses. The 80s was a time of enormous excess. So in really, all like the Wolf yes. of Wall Street to an extent? Very much so. The Wolf of Wall Street is one of the best exposés of how the retail or sales side or broking, in terms of the way it thinks, works. One of the mistakes that people make is they believe that stockbrokers are there for their benefit. As a population, and we'll talk broad populations because there are there are probably exceptions, they're not. They're there for their own benefit. To give you a, an idea, I was asked once to review a portfolio. This person rocked up and they'd had $100,000 to invest. They'd been given 100 stocks. So the broker they had dealt with had split their hundred grand into $1,000 lots. Now, why would they do that? It's obvious. 
it enabled them to hit the client for 100 lots of a minimum brokerage of $100. Wow. Instead of just block investing it or because when you've got 100 stocks, you replicate the index anyway, just telling you to put it in an index fund. The industry exists for its own enrichment. This is why technology has been a brilliant thing because technology has ripped the price out from under brokers and has forced them to move to different models. So now they really struggle. The big money has gone out of stockbroking. The money involved in stockbroking in the 80s was enormous. Even through the 90s, right up until probably the dot-com boom, when internet trading just took off. Why, why would I pay you $100 minimum brokerage when I can do it for 19 Let's talk about that culture in the 80s again. You're talking drugs of all sorts, alcohol of all sorts, come 12 o'clock Friday, it's just a, yes. a party in the office. Can you tell us any more experiences that happened? The odd thing with brokers used to be, I would rock in early and leave early. And they'd go, oh, we, we were here till 8 o'clock last night. And my response to that was, no, you weren't. You were here till 8 o'clock last night getting pissed on the company's booze because you just emptied the company's fridge. And that was largely the mentality of it. It was thought of as a giant boys club with too much money, too little, too little education, no supervision and no responsibility. And so it was really just a turbocharged sales role. Let's talk about your special report, the number one lie in the finance industry. This is an intriguing one. You've got to go back to understanding the culture of broking or finance in general. Think of it this way. I come from an academic or scientific background. One of the great joys of science is that it's self-correcting. When it makes a mistake, the mistake is spotted and it's corrected and the course is altered. Uh, this is why it's superior to magical thinking as a way of working things out, because it corrects. When it makes an error, errors are found and they're corrected. And you move closer and closer and closer towards the truth. The intriguing thing about finance, and th this is leading me towards the number one lie, is that it doesn't self-correct at all. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite lies is the notion of dollar cost averaging. Dollar cost averaging says that, look, if you buy ABC share at $10, and it falls to nine, you just more, buy more. If it falls to eight, you buy more. But falls to seven, buy more. Six, buy more. The argument is that when it eventually turns around, your average entry cost will be lower. And when you think about it, you think, oh, it sounds logical, doesn't it? It sounds really sensible. The unfortunate fact is that when you look into whether there's any actually evidence of this, there's none. Dollar cost averaging portfolios perform worse than those that just make single block investments and move in and out. Yet if you Google dollar cost averaging, as it's known, you'll find thousands of references from brokers, financial planners, fund managers about how brilliant it is. And it's absolutely rubbish. And it's rubbish because finance cannot self-correct. It cannot self-correct because self-correction means a change in the basic culture. A change in the basic culture means putting the client first. So you have to remember this is an industry that fought tooth and nail to remove the best interest test clause from all legislation. They did not want to be forced to act in the best interest of their clients. They want to act in their own best interests. Now imagine this. Imagine we recrafted re the Hippocratic Oath 
in the form that financial planners or brokers would have it. And it would be, first do no harm provided it doesn't interfere with me and the lease on my Mercedes. They actually changed the clause. They, they fought tooth and nail to try and have it removed. And unfortunately, Unfortunately for them, it is stuck. They have to act in the best interests of their clients. Now, I can't think of any other industry in the world that would move to deliberately act against their clients and to have that enshrined in legislation so they could get away with it. And it speaks volumes as to the industry. And this is why when dealing with finance of all sorts, you actually need to learn to play a very good defence. And the best defence is thinking for yourself and here's where we run into the problem, because most people don't want to think for themselves. Most people want to be told, and quite rightly, we abrogate responsibility to people we think are more experienced and more knowledgeable than us. When you get on a plane to fly to Adelaide, when you walk on, you walk on and turn right. You don't turn left and go sit in the cockpit because you think you know more. You abrogate that responsibility to the pilot because you assume that they know more 100 times out of 100, they do know more than you unless you fly professionally for a living yourself. And so that's a natural tendency. The unfortunate thing is that sets us up to be absolutely reamed by the finance industry. It's like superannuation. I regard superannuation as an idiot tax. It's an idiot tax on individuals imposed at the best of governments courtesy of superannuation funds. The current balance of super funds in Australia, I think, is about $1.6 trillion. Over the past decade or so, the finance industry has taken about $1.5, $1.9 billion in fees off people to deliver nothing. It's the greatest con on God's green earth, and I really wish I'd thought of it. Because it is so successful, it is legally mandated, and it is socially accepted. As a form of thievery, outside of taxation, it's the best one I can think of. And so we're back to that notion of having to think for yourself. So let's go back to that. Traders and investors, what can they do to empower themselves and gain financial literacy so they're not devoured by wolves in sheep's clothing? Simply think. Say to yourself, does that make sense? This involves things like when you – we'll use a simple example. When you get your superannuation statement and it says that your super has returned on average – 5% for the past 10 years, and the All Ordinary's total return indexes produce 10, ask why that might be. Why are people who are taking money off you to do a job professionally not able to do it professionally? And whilst I cannot give financial advice in any way, shape or form, all I can do is say what I would do in that situation. I would look for an index-based fund where possible if I was not an active investor and simply lob the money in that, pay very, very little in terms of fees and commissions, and I would outperform 99.9% .9 of all managers in Australia over the long term, and the 0.1% I didn't outperform would simply be a fluke, and I'd catch them eventually. Chris Tate, we'll have to wrap it up there. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Caroline. And stay tuned next week, guys, for Dr. Jenny Brockus on neuroscience for traders. I'm Caroline Stephen. Have a good week in the markets. See you next show. You've been listening to TalkingTrading.com.au with Caroline Stephen. Make sure you are subscribed to this website to receive the very latest market views, commentary, and expert opinion. Tune in next week as we've got a bumper show planned. Bye for now.
The views represented on Talking Trading are general in nature and do not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Before acting on any of the information, consider its appropriateness in regard to your own situation.